I am. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, I'm in Los Feliz, on the east side. So you decided to join the dark side and move to Los Angeles. <laughs> I uh, I did. Yeah, there was like a little bit of a mass exodus when I got out of Colombia, um, and so yeah, I went to the dark side. Mass exodus. So a lot of people went to the west coast. I mean, I guess I would use that in quotes. I think there were there were a number of people from my year who did come out here. Um, I think I was sort of at the tail end of that because uh, I came out a year after I had graduated. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a community from my year who are out here. No question. Why do you think that is? Because most of them went into. Uh, is it? Would you say that the business still kind of revolves around LA? I mean, I think if you would ask me that question before the pandemic, I would have given you a different answer. I think mm. so much can be accomplished now over Zoom. I mean, I find that so much of the pitching that I do, even to people who live in Los Angeles, is over Zoom. Mm. Um, but at the time when I graduated, I made the decision that um, the kinds of stories that I liked to tell and where I thought those jobs might be, it seemed like Los Angeles was a was a better fit. Um, so that's definitely why I moved out. Um, and I think I would do it again. But I think so much can be accomplished now over Zoom yeah. in a way that 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 just it, it wasn't given the same kind of weight before the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that, um, like the types of projects that you you know thought about kind of would be, you know, would be conducive to move to L.A. Because when I think about I mean, a lot of your, um, you know, your work on film and television, like ju I just saw Aftermath recently. I mean, that takes place in uh, this cold wilderness setting, which is definitely not L.A. So For sure. what, what do you what would you say? Because um, you've done a, a few projects in that type of setting. Um, you know, I, I mean, the Apex is, takes place in kind of a more wilderness setting as well, like out in the wild. So what about that? setting kind of gravitates or compels you i mean is it is it the isolation the fact that people kind of can't hear all this mess that's happening in the background yeah do you mean as it relates to like los angeles as a place to live or as it relates to sort of the kinds of stories that might be told here as opposed to anywhere else no away from la just looking at the wilderness setting in general uh i, could, I mean just looking at where aftermath takes place apex takes place i mean because they don't they definitely don't take place in la i mean they're taking place in a very isolated um setting where you know again like uh, it, there's so much noise happening in the background but people can't really uh, people that are not in that setting are so oblivious to what's happening. I mean, wh what about that, the wilderness, kind of the out west uh, genre, what about that compels you? Yeah, I think coming to LA and moving, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up like just outside Washington, DC. So very much like a city kind of upbringing. Mm. Coming out to LA, I sort of fell in love with the outdoors in a different kind of way. I was doing a lot more hiking. Um, I was doing more camping. Uh, I, I was even just doing hikes, you know, in my neighborhood and sort of fell in love with nature, the power of nature. I started to find in my own life how grounding and restorative it was to be in nature, how awesome that can feel and mm -hmm. both how small and powerless we as humans can feel when we are yeah. confronted with gigantic mountains that have been there for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, so that just started to be themes that were really interesting to me, the, the power of nature compared to the sort of um, uh, sort of power of man and how we mm. often think we are more dominant, but there, but, but anything in nature 
is more powerful than us. It will be here long after we are gone. And so those elements started to infuse my life and therefore then my work. As a result, I started to become really interested in survival stories and and nature, both as um, a sort of means to explore other other elements and but also just um as a setting uh, a really rich setting to set different kinds of genre stories i I definitely have found um that sort of natural world to be endlessly fascinating in my life and in my work and and that was a big change just just from coming from the east coast to the west coast and and you know you can drive two hours and be in the mountains you can go skiing and then swimming like it, yeah. it's 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 a very special place california for all of its um for all of its drawbacks yeah. you know droughts and wildfires are a very dangerous combination yeah. uh but there's also an incredible amount of natural resources that i find to be one of the best parts of living in la well it's kind of interesting i mean <clears throat> that idea of nature uh kind of taking us over and being here and outlasting us you know, uh, futile humans that are trying to sort of take control of the world. I mean, that's a theme that's definitely been explored in Apex and also in Aftermath and obviously the Purge. I mean, um, in terms of that topic, I remember uh, there's, a, there's a part, uh, there's a piece in Apex where Ben, this adversary uh, character, basically says killings in our DNA. Uh, and he's talking about the human species. He's giving this spiel about evolution and really what they're doing there. And I, I, I don't know, it's... Do you find that um, as powerless as humans are, that we still take in kind of a stronghold or like a, a power position in the world? I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that most, I, I think there's a, a, a narrow mindedness that I think we as a species have come to um, think of ourselves as the, as the top of the food chain. Yeah. And I think if you're looking at it strictly as like, oh, well, our brains are the most evolved, uh, then yes, that is true. But there are things that we are doing to hasten a kind of catastrophe every yeah. day. And as a thinking, caring creature, uh, I'm I find my brain um, is constantly wrestling with that. Just as just as a member of um, of the human race and so i find that when i try to think about storytelling it's a way of reckoning with our place in that ecosystem in the like the full ecosystem of of both nature and sort of history of mankind We, we sort of come from this like ill or be killed mentality in terms of just pure survival and i find that um when you're out in nature, away from technology, away from the trappings of normal life, it's this incredible equalizer where you realize just how hard it is to survive, how little the the, the natural world cares if you are alive or dead. In yeah. fact, they would probably prefer that you're dead right. and they'll just go on living in a much happier existence yeah, exactly. than having to deal with the sort of hole that human beings uh, exert on, on the natural world. That That is something that... I guess I have discovered in the course of writing a bunch of stuff, how interested I am. It it wasn't, I don't think it was conscious at the time. It's Mm -hmm. only upon reflection that I've realized just how interested I am in that sort of, um, the sort of interplay of, of man and nature and in, and in apex sort of man and woman and nature. That was the sort of kind of trio I had sort of built the story around, um, as just, uh, 
came out of the pandemic and feeling trapped and wanting to be outside and not being able to and and sort of that that's very much where that that story originated when you write do you write with characters this might uh, kind of vary depending on whether you're writing a film um you know or for television but do you write with characters in mind are you consciously thinking about the character's voice as you're writing or are you thinking more about how the characters yeah mostly, you know they're in this they each have their roles in kind of allowing the story to unfold i mean which which camp would you say that you kind of uh, gravitate to the camp meaning sorry that your your feet cut out for just a second you were saying the camp between what and what between writing in terms of looking at the character listening to the character's voice as you're writing thinking more about character and that development versus seeing the characters as almost a tool in order to you know being uh kind of uh, uh underlying this uh story that's unfolding so the story being the key versus basically the character being the key yeah that's a great question it's uh, the the annoying answer is that it depends it depends what comes to me first uh and yeah. it depends sort of what what i'm ultimately trying to say i mean they end up both being essential i think one can inform the other and it just depends where you start with um with aftermath for example like i knew i wanted to have the brothers relationship be the central part of the story and i also knew on the other hand i wanted to film it in the cold so th th those were two elements that in the sort of early drafts of the script i was wrestling with how much to sort of prioritize world building versus kind of character development and i just knew i was interested in both of those things so my process ended up being like how do i wrangle them together similarly with apex i i had just this idea of you know a, a sort of apex athlete and a, and a female rock climber and 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 how to put that person in the most trying circumstance and and that's how the story started so it, that one started with character and and how to build a plot that would test her to her sort of ultimate extreme um yeah, yeah. interesting <laughs> i mean aftermath uh and then also newsworthy you worked with noah robbins is that I uh, did. Are, you, uh, is it, are you related to this uh person? that is my brother yeah mm -hmm. no uh, yeah noah um is my brother um and we have worked together on a bunch of stuff a lot of my early film school exercises were shot with him because he was um a freshman at columbia while i was a first year at mm -hmm. columbia so we were on campus together it was the first time we'd been in the same school maybe ever in our whole life i'm about seven years older than him so yeah. when i left for college he was like a little kid and so we just ended up starting to work together and now he remains not just one of my sort of favorite collaborators but he's he's the person i get notes from on early drafts he, he's a, an immense resource in terms of the story notes that he gives me on on various things that i'm writing yeah and also a great actor i mean really great that is true also as well yes yeah. the, that is as well so i want to i want to i want to talk about that so was this always sort of the path for you i mean you mentioned you grew up in dc i mean was that for the kind of the whole high school uh you know through like from elementary school onwards or like did you move at all um we lived in this sort of dc maryland area um my, my whole life but as it relates to sort of i guess i was always writing i was always bossing my brothers around in our basement like making up games we yeah. we didn't um you know i i guess 
it, it's good that my parents sort of limited um, uh, t TV watching in those early days. And, and we didn't have video games as much as we begged our parents to get them for us. We just didn't, we, we didn't get those. So it ended up being a lot of dress up, costumes, building games. I would shoot my brothers with Nerf guns all the time, bossing them around. So it's very much still what I'm doing, still playing dress up in different ways. Uh, but there's definitely kind of a, a through line from um, what I was doing with my brothers in our basement to, to sort of storytelling that I'm doing now. Um, it's just, uh, it's just different, <laughs> a different you scale. Two, you have two brothers? I have two younger brothers. Yeah. Wow. So then uh, what did your family do like, for work and stuff? Um, well, for, for most of my life, my mom, uh, was raising us. My dad was a lawyer. Um, and, uh, and now, now my, both, both my parents work now that we're all grown up and out of the house. Do you have any, uh, pressure to become a lawyer? Did either of your brothers? None of us. We're all in the arts in one form or another. Uh, Noah's an actor. My middle brother, uh, Ethan is a musician and, um, and music teacher. And, you know, I think the arts were always just a real big part of our life, whether that was like writing, dancing, acting, you know, we, we kind of just, and music was a huge part. I, I think my parents, there was no pressure to become a lawyer, at least that I felt outwardly. Um, yeah. I think they just sort of encouraged us to do what felt fulfilling. And that ended up being um, sort of creative pursuits. What kind of music were you listening to? Oh man, I mean, we were, you know, my parents were like hippies in every sense of the word. So we were growing up on like my dad's record collection, you know, anything from like the Beatles and the Beach Boys to like yeah. Motown, oh, James yeah. Brown. I mean, we were just, you know, we would have games in the car where my dad would play like the oldie station and my yeah. brothers and I would compete to see like who could name the yeah. artist first. Like that yeah. was just, that was uh, a lot of our car trips um, were, were competitions in the backseat to figure out like, you know, is that Herman's Hermits or is that, you know, um, uh, the left bank or is yeah. that, you know, the zombies? We sort of yeah. we grew up on the like sort of late 50s, 60s, early 70s. Um, I guess it's now called classic rock. But when I was growing up, it was oldies. And so that tends to be still what I listen to if yeah. given the choice. Yeah, it's interesting when he uh, in Apex, when he starts singing that. I guess it's the Who song. I mean, you kind of lose it. It's interesting because in your in your work, I mean, there's definitely a dramatic, uh, often an adventure, a sort of thriller um, undertone. But then in in those moments, you still see you still see these comedic opportunities almost. At least that's how I perceive them. I mean, is that um, do you do that kind of to deflate the tension at, at times a little bit, or is that just kind of naturally you want it to be more kind of real and people do that in real life? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I always think about it consciously while I'm doing it. It's not like I'm trying to make the moment funny or trying to deflate tension. I guess I just find that, you know, that that's just true to human beings. You can be in the most like fucked up circumstance and still find humor in that. And I find that jokes can be both funny and scary depending on the moment and so that just felt like in that moment in apex ben is having fun and he's also yeah. toying with sasha and he's and he's doing it because he has the power right. to like make a joke and that would be something sasha would never be able to do it's it's not funny and therefore makes it all the more upsetting that the power dynamic is so unequal that he can take this moment and make a joke out of it 
can make a joke out of her uh, distress and her trauma and, and, and basically use it to torture her. And so that was interesting to take a joke and use a song and, and find a way to, to make her predicament even more upsetting. So that's where that came from. What planted the seed? I mean, you mentioned that you and your brothers were sort of um, encouraged and also ex- like expressive in terms of um, dressing up, playing games with each other in terms of you know being involved in the arts. I mean, what was what was sort of the thing that planted the seed in terms of like film and and writing and all that stuff? Yeah, the the truth is, I I've always been writing creatively before I knew that that was a job. I've always been watching movies before I realized that people wrote them and directed them and had huge teams of people to help bring it to life. They were just part of my life growing up. Anytime I would have um, a school assignment, I would always try to find a way to write something creative or film something. It just was more fun for me. And so it wasn't really until the end of college where I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, where it where film school started to become um, something I was really thinking about as I started to think, you know, there's a lot that I don't know. And I started to realize how much I didn't know and and wanted to go to school to learn some of that. Um, And so, yeah, that's where that sort of started. What what do you think you didn't know? Oh man, I still think there's so much that I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, mostly I, I, I felt that I wanted a community. I just Mm. didn't coming out of undergrad. I didn't have a community of writers and collaborators. Uh, The the short films that I made were very much a, a solo endeavor, whether that was like a short narrative film or a short doc. Yeah. And school I knew would, would help foster that. And I also just wanted an excuse to have to, to just write, to have time just to write and not, right. you know, be working on top of that. And so having four years to do that was an immense gift and and necessary for my sort of creative sort of coming of age, like sort yeah. of learning the 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 work, the real in the trenches work that's required to build a story. Um, Columbia was immensely helpful in in that foundation and the last nine years since graduation have been a similar kind of um, schooling experience where I've learned um, a little bit of how the sausage gets made and and gotten some some battle scars in the process, (laughs) no doubt. Yeah, yeah. No, so then you, I mean, undergrad, you went to Yale, right? In I did, yeah. So did you have a good experience there in terms of, um, I mean, I guess furthering your, knowing what you, like learning what you didn't know a little bit and also assembling that network? Or was it more in, in film school, do you think, at, like at Columbia, that, you, that that started to kind of take fold for you? I definitely still have um, friends and people I've collaborated with from undergrad. I think college was very much about learning how much I love storytelling. Like I did sketch comedy, I did improv. I was mm. working with people who have since gone on to be like very successful writers and directors. And and so being around that and exposed to that, I think that was what, that that's what solidified my sort of interest and ultimately my commitment to this as a career. Um, and then film school was, like learning how to do that properly. I, I mean, I came into film school having made 
like one short film. I had never really directed anything in that sense. And so it, it, it just taught me what that was. Just didn't even know what directing was. Didn't know how to do it and didn't understand the process. And it, and Columbia was immensely helpful for that and, and, and many other things. The short that you made, was that like kind of super eight or, I mean, how did you, how did you shoot that? You mean the shorts before school? Yeah. Oh, they were like on what format? Oh, they were like on mini DV. If people oh, even wow. remember what that is, there was yeah. like my mom's old camcorder. And I was like, I shot something during the summer. I took a film class. Yeah. I made a short documentary about my, uh, at the time, my 101 year old, great, great aunt. Like oh, I, wow. I just was using things that were available stories that were, that were small enough and accessible enough that I just didn't need anybody else because I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have a network yet the way I, I feel like I do now or a, a little bit more of a network. Uh, but back then it was, it was just a matter of finding a story that I thought was achievable on a, a with no money and, and not a ton of resources. So, so then after, um, after college, do you go straight to film school or do you take a, a break and do other stuff? Um, it was, there was like about a, a, like a sort of two year gap as I sort of wrestled with committing to that and dealing with the applications and figuring out where I wanted to go. Um, I was sort of both back home in DC working and then, and then made the move to New York, um, sort of uh, the year before I started school. Interesting. So then, um, I mean, when you get to film school, I mean, what are your, what are your expectations? I mean, going back to the kind of learning what you don't know, I mean, and, and also trying to foster a network. I mean, were those, were those kind of big, the big things? Did you see films that kind of blew your mind or, or work with professors that blew your mind a little bit about films, what was achievable and what you could actually, um, you know, do in the medium? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I, I kind of came into school knowing the kinds of stories that I loved to tell, they, they tended to be more genre. They tended to be a bit more sort of commercial films. Um, that's just what I grew up loving and found that that's just what I was naturally interested in writing. And so for me, Columbia helped me understand how those stories were constructed, that the, the best genre stories still have to do this emotional character development work and that those two things must work in tandem. And so for me, school was trying to figure out how the stories worked and why I loved certain stories. And as for classes and professors, I mean, my, my favorite class, and, and I, I wonder if you've interviewed other people who have said similarly, but Eric Mendelssohn's directing class, mm -hmm. which I took my second year, um, for me was was one of the most incredible learning experiences I've ever had in my life. I've had a, a lot of amazing teachers and Eric is absolutely at the top of that list in terms of just not just his in excitement and enthusiasm, but how much he gave to my class. Like these were 12, 13, 14 hour classes wow. and they were just be these marathons where we were all, it felt like we were all learning together. This It was like a little sort of boot camp and the 12 of us were going through like basic directing training together yeah. and, and whatever we were interested in, that's kind of what the class ended up becoming. And so, you know, he really taught me what, to do like, like what directing was and how powerful the camera can be. And that has really informed the next sort of stage of my writing where I feel like I try to write 
as a director. I try to write on ability. Wow. So then, um, I mean, in terms of, I want to definitely talk about the difference between um, between directing, r- writing for things that you um, direct, and then also, you know, kind of the reverse where you're um, writing for something that someone else is directing. But b- before that, I mean, what were the commercial, the quote unquote commercial type of films that you grew up loving? Oh, man. Um, I I feel like it was, you know, I was like a kid of the late 80s and early yeah. 90s. So it was like, you know, uh, Indiana Jones was huge in my house. E.T. Yeah. was huge. Uh, Wizard yeah. of Oz. I mean, Wizard of Oz is a lot obviously older, yeah. but there's a similar yeah. kind of like magical, fantastical worlds. Th- those ended yeah. up being a lot of what we loved, uh, adventure stories of all kinds. Um, and then, you know, once it got to like, college i sort of fell in love with the coen brothers and and found that they played with genre in really interesting ways and and so those ended up being um major influences as well as just like reading a lot of books i've always been reading basically my whole life uh and so 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 i was just kind of always interested in stories that's just like always was such a part of um my life as a kid whether it was movies or TV or books um, or playing dress up, it was all just like building a story, building a world. I mean, the cons definitely do that, uh, you know, to a, a, like on steroids to an exaggerated degree. But I mean, what, what of theirs did uh, kind of pulled you in the most, would you say? Oh, without a doubt, it's Fargo. I think it's the perfect movie. I think it's a beautiful movie. And uh, when I saw it, my, I mean, my brain was blown. I was like, Oh my God, I, I, don't even understand how they told this story and made the jokes like that. That's where I started to learn that like jokes can heighten violence and violence can heighten jokes and that those things work in tandem. And, you know, there's this, the great scene in, in Fargo. One of my favorite scenes is when um, Steve Buscemi is just watching this, his prisoner, his captive run through the snow and for her, she's running for her life. And like, you're already laughing. (laughs) You're laughing. Like we are laughing with Steve Buscemi and, and, and uh, Peter Stormare's character. Yeah. And it, and it's one of those moments where on the page that could be so terrifying, but the way it's directed, you're so with the hitmen that you laugh too. And you're upset with yourself for laughing. You feel bad that you're laughing. So that scene, as I started to understand what it was doing and how that both was written and also directed was immensely illuminating in terms of like what I loved and why I loved stories is that it can do that. Yeah, that guy's incredible, Steve Buscemi, man. And then Bill Macy and Fran too in that. Everybody, I mean, everybody is, is, is extraordinary and it's a perfect movie those guys are always on their on their game i mean what's interesting though is like um because i when i first started uh kind of getting into them i mean their films look like masterpieces it looks like they've orchestrated every single element of every single frame of every single shot and i i thought that like my um perception was that you know joel and ethan like they would never give their actors anything to kind of work with like they would just feed them every single component. But then I started learning that they actually do give freedom to a lot of the people they work with, whether it's, you know, Tim Blake Nelson or Steven Root. I mean, these people that show up in film after film uh, and these like character parts. I mean, is that kind of how you work as a director and writer too? I mean, do you, how much do you kind of give 
the actors to work with? Do you want them to, you know, be on point for every single comma that you write? Or do you, do you kind of give them a little bit of freedom using that improv, you know, experience that you had in college to kind of uh, run with things? Yeah, I, I'm not, um, I, I don't try to stick to the script to like to the words of the script necessarily. Uh, I always trust the actors more than the script. If they feel that something isn't working, I, I feel privileged to have worked with actors that I trust enough to tell me that something isn't right. There were scenes in Aftermath where I trusted Will, who played the older brother, or Noah, yeah. who played the younger brother. When something wasn't right, they told me, and we tried to fix it. We tried to figure it out. Sometimes we didn't figure it out until I was in the editing room. We had to reshoot a scene that was like pivotal to the movie. Um, no, I, I find that I'm, I always am trying to work with people who are better at their jobs. Um, and they're, and they're just trying to help me look better at my job than I deserve yeah. to look. And so I, I find that I, um, try my best to be as collaborative and to listen to those collaborators because they know their shit really well. And, and if I'm too rigid and not, and not present in the moment and, and adapting to not just like a, a sort of maybe a physical demand on the space, what we can shoot, but what the scene, I may have written the scene thinking one thing, and now that we're getting it on its feet and you're dealing with two actors, maybe they're, maybe it's not right on the page. Mm. And that definitely has happened um, certainly in my short film. And then obviously as I've started to work in TV, you know, you're, you're constantly rewriting for actors. You're constantly doing production rewrites and, and late night rewrites to sort of make it as good as you can make it. And then when you're on set, you're still trying to make it as good as you can. Uh, and so I've sort of, you know, kind of had that experience. Wow. So then, um, so after Columbia, I mean, what do you do? What's the first kind of, what's the, I don't know, breaks, you know, breaks the right word, but like, what do you do? What's your initial move after that? Uh, so coming out to LA was big. Um, and, and just, you know, I, I got representation sort of, soon after I got out of school. And so it was a matter of just meeting a lot of people and, and getting my short film out there. A TV script that I had written was optioned and started. I started to develop that with producers and, and pitched that uh, to network. So I, I kind of had um, like a kind of crash course early on in what that looks like. And then it was really uh, the first like break was becoming a staff writer on the first season of the purge and, and that happened because i happened to get lunch with a columbia friend of mine who had worked on aftermath who was sending samples to the showrunners that week like that's that's how fortuitous that was like if we hadn't gotten lunch that week i wouldn't have been on the show uh and so um ragav if you're listening you uh you have changed my life which he knows i have been immensely appreciative for that for for many many years but that's that that's kind of how um that's kind of how those things work and and the the funniest part was that i came to la sort of work here and then my first sort of staff writing job was then back in new york and so but oh, but wow. i would not have gotten that job yeah, yeah, had i stayed yeah. in new york i needed to meet enough people and had sort of met on enough other things that i hadn't gotten that once i was in the mix on the purge i had met enough people uh, at that point to sort of um sort of be able to get over the the first staff writing hump 
Did you make Newsworthy before or after film school? Newsworthy was my was my eight to twelve. The, the Newsworthy was my first year film, um, oh, which we made in the summer of the summer after my first year, and then and then Aftermath was my was my thesis film. Yeah, Newsworthy is awesome. I love that film. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's a very different tone uh, yeah. than a lot of the other stuff that I've written. That was yeah. um, that was one. That was not. I did not write that script. That was. Uh, I worked with Katie Silverman, who is wonderful and an amazing writer, and and so we collaborated on that script. And again, I knew I wanted to write something with Noah. Oh, all right, not, I wanted to work on something with Noah, and yeah. and that and that has making newsworthy was one of the most fun weeks i have ever had working with all those kids uh from my old high school who were noah's friends yeah. uh it was like going to theater camp and so it was just it was so dorky and so much fun uh i would do it again in a heartbeat yeah that redheaded uh, uh spanish dude uh he's talking oh my he kind of kills me but then uh that's the one where he who, said, who is who is now day. spongebob uh, who was spongebob on broadway uh no who, really? yeah even later yeah 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 there's um oh, there's a couple people who in that movie who have uh, won tony awards or been nominated wow. for tony awards which is uh, unbelievable that are they were in my first year film totally uh amazingly privileged experience for me well that kind of leads to another film or another question which is just about casting i mean um i i don't know i mean I, we kind of started talking about the difference um and i guess in your case kind of the mixed um experience of writing both for character and then also story but when you think about cast is that in your mind at all um and i, I wonder how this kind of interplays also in your in working in television but do you do you write for a specific cast of people like um do you write things for noah or do you kind of write something and then have this audition process where you um you know you want someone to kind of fill the part that you wrote yeah i mean when i'm working on tv shows that obviously they're not my yeah. idea i'm just part of a staff um yeah. you know we are usually writing the early script without knowing the cast but then once the cast is locked in then there's like a whole other set of rewrites that are dialing in the dialogue or the scenes for the characters uh, for the actors so then we do start writing some of the later episodes and and even going back and rewriting and playing to actors strengths which we might not discover until the audition process the casting process the early rehearsal process so that's that's sort of on the one hand that's like how my experience in tv has been um but on the stuff that i write for myself yeah. Yeah. it it depends what it is i mean i i'm writing something with noah now that is for him and so i'm very much writing the character that i think he would have a lot of fun playing and that also he's excited to play in that yeah. case i i don't really have other actor relationships like that uh like i do with my brother. So I, yeah. I find that I'm, I may sometimes have a, a prototype of an actor that I most likely will not get to cast in the movie. Um, yeah. but when it comes to sort of my own work, I'm usually not writing with a specific cast of a specific actor in mind, just because the odds of landing that person are basically zero. And so I, I find that I'm just trying to write the most, um, the most awesome character that I possibly can and, and hoping that the rest happens, you know, from there, uh, it's sort of out of my control. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I love uh, I love the purge, and I think with um, stuff that Blumhouse and Jason, um, you know, does. I mean, I definitely have followed it. It's I've always seen it. There's some stuff that I've liked. There's other stuff that I um, have kind of visited that I didn't um, I didn't really know what to expect. And I think this one was an example of that because I don't know. Immediately, um, like I I remember seeing the Ethan Hawke film um you know i guess back in the day and then i saw some of the gorilla films too and i really like frank gorilla i mean i think he's a really powerful presence on film and was that were you kind of aware of those um of those kind of pre-series uh purge um i guess there were four of them right um there, were there had since been you... five there had since been five at the time that yeah. the show started they had not yet released the fourth one um yeah i was a big fan of those movies i there was a couple friends from film school that we every i think they came out on july 4th we would always get uh burgers and then go to see the purge that was like yeah. that was like <laughs> a, a trifecta uh uh anniversary we had kind of um, those years that it came out so I was already a fan of those movies. Um, I loved the sort of, I just think it's like one of the craziest, gnarliest, most brilliant premises I've ever heard and ended up finding that I had so many questions about like, well, like what happens the other times of the year? Like it's a question that James DeMonaco who created yeah. the purge and directed the movies uh, has certainly been asked. And, and that, and that's why being on, on the TV show was, really interesting was sort of it was an opportunity to do something a little bit different that the movies couldn't do in 90 minutes we had a bit more real estate to play with um so yeah i was absolutely aware of the films and and um and was really fortunate to be on a couple of seasons of the show yeah i mean when i first was kind of entering the series and even the movies to some extent i almost i thought it was going to be kind of like do you know those hostile films with eli roth where it's there's like very like high emphasis on kind of the torture scenes and stuff and yeah. um people taking this i guess almost like the steve buscemi but way more of that sick pleasure and seeing some you know misery even ben's character in apex but this is i mean uh they're using chainsaws and a lot of weird weird things i mean did you think about those films differently or kind of similarly at all to the to the burge you know i I think that the purge sometimes gets lumped in as like a horror, uh, uh, like it's thought of in the horror genre. I never experience it that way. Yeah. I, for me, me they're more like um, action thriller, like survival thrillers, yeah. where things like because the premise is so heightened, the the drama ends up being more grounded it's just like these people exactly. on the streets trying to survive and so i i really responded to that kind of tension between like premise and execution and so for me i just find it scarier when the threat or, or a, a, de a demon or like a devil or there's some yeah. sort of supernatural or extraordinary kind of um uh antagonist or villain yeah. like i find the scariest ones are when like the bad guy is just another human being and right. just they're just like unhinged or or have their own philosophy that runs counter to yours and you are now like on a crash course so I, that's what i tried to do in apex i, I just loved yeah. um i love those stories because I, I find it scarier i just find it scarier when it's like grounded in our world and you know the purge has started to feel more more real uh yeah. every year in a, in a really much, yeah. terrifying way uh and yeah. uh yeah 
yeah, still waiting for that bill in Congress to make uh, to make that legal, right? But exactly. it's, it's interesting. <laughs> like when I see the purge, I mean, I definitely as I started getting into it, my expectations. I mean, they definitely. Um, you know, the experience that I got was definitely different than the expectations that I came in with because it ended up being very much a satire in ways too. When you think about just how people communicate with each other, I mean, I remember there's that scene kind of early on when uh, Jane's employee or whatever she, you know, stabs this guy. I mean, she kills this guy um, who was actually never that um, kind of bad, as bad as she thought she he's going to be to her um, to begin with. And Jane is just like, what the, what are you doing? Like, what the hell is this? And then she's like, uh, so what's the process now? Like, do we talk to HR or how do I get my promotion? And it's, I know, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great, man, because that is kind of how life is. It is about um, people that are kind of conniving and, and trying to get their own motives across this noise, you know, that is other people and why deal with other people if you don't have to. Right. So that's when you think about writing and, you know, you became a story editor. I mean, how does that, how does that kind of transition happen for you? Uh, in terms of, well, I think maybe story editing is just like a, it's the next level up from staff writing. So I'm st yeah. it's still very much doing the same job. Um, I think it, it, uh, you know, on that first season of The Purge, I, I was in the position of doing a lot of um, production rewrites and, and managing mm -hmm. a lot of scripts and, and doing dialogue passes and, and a lot of the like the last minute notes. Um, I ended up doing quite a bit. And so I kind of was able to see how the characters can change and how you can and sort of um, make them change in certain yeah. ways. Uh, over the course of a season that had been very different from the kind of writing that I had done previously, where, you know, you have a two hour movie and yeah. the, and the act structure means that the character does a certain thing and learns a certain thing and becomes a different person by the end. And so dealing with a very larger canvas. And again, even in Film Squad, I only ever written pilots where you're still mm. only writing the first episode. And now I'm dealing with writing episode four to lead to five, to get to yeah. eight, to get to 10. And so I think for me, it was just about um, learning to to tell those stories over ten episodes, and then knowing those things were going into production. And I, you know, we had to sort of dial all those elements in as much as possible. Uh, and you know, you do your best, but there's a deadline, and there's two hundred people waiting to build the set and make the costumes, and you just sort of have to get that done. And it becomes um, there's almost like an assembly line quality to it that I hadn't experienced in my writing before. I hadn't been at that level until I was at that level and kind of thrown in um, to to production kind of on my first job. Uh, so that that was a was I, I learned a ton about TV storytelling from getting to to really watch it from the very beginning. Uh, until like the final mix at the end. Is it does it get hard sometimes to kind of preserve um, like original ideas when you have you know so many people kind of taking passes on this thing? I mean, do you feel like it's kind of challenging to to keep it fresh sometimes, or do you guys work? Do you and the other writers uh, on that show? Did you work pretty collaboratively in terms of um, you know being constructive uh, with the criticism and then also like figuring out like this works, this doesn't. Like, let's make the story kind of the king here. I mean, I guess there's a couple of different answers to those questions. I would say that one of the amazing parts of being on a writing staff is that you have 
four or five or six other people who are keeping the sort of narrative ball in the air. If you don't necessarily have the idea right then, there's five other people to help ping off of and respond to. And it's a very different experience than being alone in your room, just staring at your computer and it's just on you to figure it out. I found it's so efficient. I, I equate it to like playing sports. I, I, I grew up playing baseball and, and mm. playing soccer. And so for me, it was like a team effort. It really was. And so, you know, there's an efficiency that comes from that. What might take a writer by himself or herself several months and several drafts to figure out in a writer's room, you can solve that in an afternoon. Uh, you know, the flip side is that you're also dealing with ego and personality and writing styles. And, and most of these people have never worked together. And so you're, yeah. there are some growing pains that can happen, can and do happen. Um, and that's just part of the, that's just part of the process. Uh, so I would say that what I experienced is that it was, it, it was a, it was a kind of storytelling collaboration that I hadn't experienced before. Um, but I, I find it to be immensely fulfilling when it, when it works really well. Was it, um, was it challenging to kind of between, you know, season one and season two kind of hit refresh a little bit when you have this new cast? I mean, then you have Derek Luke in the mix and some other actors. I mean, um, and you're kind of doing what you saw a little bit in the movies, but you wanted to see more of, which is like what happens next year, what happens the year after. So was that, was that a challenge like hitting the refresh button or did you find that um, you were able to kind of maybe place in some storylines that you had originally thought of in season one, but maybe it wasn't right or maybe the, you know, the time wasn't right. I mean, how did, how do you feel about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, w there was, a, um, there was like a personnel refresh that definitely happened between season one and season two. There were only two writers um, who ended up going from season one to season two. So it was a, it was a different, uh, different writing staff. And we were also dealing with like a different idea for the show. I mean, I think in season right. one, it's still like one night and you're yeah. looking at the episode, the sort of episodes are divided almost not quite, hour, but like right. almost every hour basically. Yeah. Uh, and so in season two, I felt like the idea of season two, which was, this is going to take place on the other 364 days. For me, that was like that was the TV show idea. That's when yeah. that started to crystallize. Like, okay, there is a TV. That is what cannot exist in the movies. And this is why it can only be a TV show. And so that yeah. was really exciting creatively. And one of the things that was really fun in the writer's room to come up with were like all of the cold opens. Um, one yeah. of the other writers and I kind of pitched this idea in season one and it never quite worked. And so season two ended up being a little bit more flexible in terms of its structure. And so a lot of the cold opens, like in the pilot where the woman is auditioning to do yeah, the sort of like purge yeah. voice, like that was yeah. uh, our writer's assistant at, uh, on the show. He was the one who pitched that and it was like the best idea that any of us had come up with. But it yeah. allowed for us to sort of do these other pops in the purge world that weren't necessarily tied to a given storyline. It was just like, mm -hmm purge world texture is kind of how we thought about it. So there was a really kind of fun and exciting creative reset where we sort of were like, all right, we're doing a new idea. It's season two. Let's like, let's, let's, 
push ourselves to think outside of the box. And, and that started with James's idea, which was, all right, this is going to take place on the, uh, outside of Purge Night. And, and that right. sort of really informed a lot of the work that we did. So, I mean, in terms of James, uh, James the Monaco, who is really the creator of the Purge, I mean, you're, you're working with him. You've been working with him post-Purge too, right? Yeah, I mean, he he and his producing partner Sebastian have been two of them, like the most um, sort of the, the kindest, most generous mentors that that I could ask for. They really have looked out for me. They've brought me into projects. They've brought me um, rewrite projects. They brought me development stuff. Uh, and and right now, um, once James finishes his his movie. Uh, he and I are going to write his next movie together. So we have very much stayed in touch and and remained. Um, they've remained like two of my favorite collaborators, without question. And it and it all started from from Purge season one a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, relationships, right? Uh, and also mentors. So then, um, uh, what about um, what about McKay? Because we're working with Adam uh, on his company too, Hyper Object, right? Yeah, that was a project that that was that project has since um, ended. We we didn't end up um, setting it up, but um, but again, that was you know my interactions with him were very limited. I, I really worked much more with his um, his producing partner on this project that we pitched. But um, but you know you you th- those relationships are immensely valuable, and and I would say that even more than the mckay one which i i don't really have with him um but i but i have developed one with barry sonnefeld uh who who shot a lot of those early coen brothers movies has directed some of my favorite movies as well uh and so i met him on a show for apple a tv show for apple that uh will never come out uh but but uh, he and i um became close and have worked together on a couple other things and and again like the getting to work with a director of that caliber and getting to write for a director like that uh, is so enjoyable. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that we have that, that I work well with James, that I work well with James and with Barry is that I kind of, I, I try to write like a director. I try to write for a director in terms of their tone, in terms of, you know, what they like to play with. And so that has really fostered a, a lovely collaboration. Yeah, he wrote. Uh, he directed Get Shorty, right? Oh yes, was, uh, yes, yeah. very much. He's directed the hell out of that, and and um, and of Black. course the Men in Black movies. Yeah. So what a transition, man! How do you go from one to the other, man? So then, um, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, it seems like you've definitely, um, you know, you've definitely paid your dues. You've had a lot of different experiences in Hollywood. You've worked on a lot on your own films. Is there something kind of um you know coming up that you're you're interested in doing that you haven't done or is there something that you want to kind of um expand something that you've been thinking about that you are that you feel like it's it's the right time to kind of explore a little bit further yeah i mean i'm i'm taking out a new tv show that i wrote the script for that i am immensely excited about it kind of feels like a a tone that i've been trying to write for like my whole life and so that um, is really exciting. It's still early stages, but we have the pilot and we're starting to look for producing partners and things like that. Um, and then it's also, uh, just about getting behind the camera again. It's been about a decade since I made aftermath and I haven't directed anything since. 
I've really been just focused on writing. And, you know, I, I came to school with much more of a creative writing background. Directing was like very new to me. And I kind of always felt that I was going to write myself into that job. And now I feel like I'm just trying to prioritize that more than I have been over the last bunch of years. So it's, uh, so I, so I would say I'm currently writing the script for something that I would love to direct and, and am really trying to, um, attend to that part of my creative life, which I feel like I've, I've really focused on the writing, which has been great. And I wouldn't have changed that. Um, but now I feel like I, I have to, I have to, and want to pay attention to making something, uh, and, and directing something and getting to work with actors again on something that is mine and is small enough that I can, um, try to sort of, that I can see a path to making in, in what is a constantly changing landscape of, yeah, of, of film and TV. And then seeing Noah's success, I assume has been, it's gotta be, feel pretty gratifying. I mean, he did a, a bunch of stuff after, after Matt, like Kimmy Schmidt and a lot of stuff on television, Billions, I know he was in that. Um, I mean, does that feel kind of good? Do you feel like you, uh, I don't know, planted the seed is the right word, but maybe gave him a forum to, you know, express his ability and his talent in a certain way through your films that eventually kind of helped his career burgeon a little bit? I cannot take any credit for <laughs> Noah's career. Uh, Noah does not need my short films or any <laughs> of my films to be uh, a successful actor. But yeah. what is fun is feeling like there are parts and or there, there are roles that most people will not think of Noah to play, but that he and I know he can play. And leaning into that is what's fun for us about that project that we're working on is like, oh, he's not going to get cast as the bad guy, but let me write a really great bad guy for him to be that, that will mm. play to his strengths. Like that's, that's what's fun about that project is, is, is leaning into uh, what I know he can do and what's exciting for him that he's not going to get cast as that thing in a, a much bigger movie. So, so that's, what's fun, I would say about that part of the process. That's awesome, man. Well, really want to say, uh, really love, you know, all of your work. Um, definitely, thank you. um, valid fan. Uh, so thanks. Thanks a lot for talking to me, man. I really, awesome. uh, thank really you so it. much, John. This has been so lovely and, and thank you so much for reaching out. Watch that.